0: So in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, we're told at the end of verse 17 that the events that happen here are a great day. And that's a hard thing for most evangelicals to fathom. God destroying the earth. God destroying people. These are hard things for us to wrap our minds around as being great. And that's not even considering the truth that most of humanity will be cast into outer darkness that has been prepared prepared for the angels, or I'm sorry, for the devil and his angels, as told to us in Matthew 25-41. And this is why the free will of man has gained just so much traction. And why election can't mean what the Bible says that it means. Because we think too highly of our loved ones, and too lowly of the one who is the lover of our souls. And this is the reason that we need to consider what is being told to us today. So I'm going to use the follow outline, the following outline to help us understand the events that happen when the sixth seal is opened. First, I'm going to reorient our minds concerning what we're really dealing with here. And then second, I'm going to discuss the events that preceded this great day and how they correspond with the sixth seal. And then finally, we'll consider why this is a great day. First, we have to keep in mind that this book, the book of Revelation, is just like all other 65 books of the Bible, in that they are all written by God. That's not a small thing. If you were to get a letter from a child, that would be cute, maybe somewhat meaningful to you. But if you received a letter, and on the, the return part, it said 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and it had a seal in the corner, we all understand the weight and the power of that seal in the office of the President of the United States and how the decisions that he makes, how they affect and rule our lives. A letter from the president will be of much greater importance than a letter that you would receive from the child that lives next door. So how much greater then is the truth that God condescended to write, to express to us things concerning himself? So let us ponder the importance of what you hold in your hands, because this is the word of God. There is nothing else like it on earth. It, like the church, is a manifestation of the essence of God. It is the only holy book available to us. And this truth, this truth was the catalyst of the Reformation, and it is why they coined that phrase, sola scriptura, which means, Scripture alone, which means, Thus saith the Lord, Thus I shall do. And the things written within it should carry the greatest weight of our lives for one reason alone. Because God is holy. And he is worthy of all praise. Which is another one of the five solas. Sola Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. And we all agree with that statement. That God is holy and worthy to be praised but we need to understand that contained within the glory due his name included in that is complete and utter obedience of all of his creation and this is a key factor in understanding the why of our verses today and this letter the book of Revelation is like all the letters in the Bible when the Continental Congress wrote the Declaration of Independence, it was a letter written to the king and government of England. It was addressed to them, and it had a great impact and bearing on them personally. And this letter, I'm sorry, that letter is like this letter, in that this letter is not written to all men. It was written for all men, Meaning that, like creation, it stands as a testimony of the reality of God that the earth dwellers hate. But it is not written to all men. It was written to the elect, to the predestined sons of God. And this is where we have been poorly taught and poorly shown. And why so many people get confused about the salvation and the love of God because we should never take the promises made to the children of God and tell them to the children of Satan. It would be wrong to promise a person who hates God Jeremiah 29.11 is for them. Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for peace and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. He does know the plans that he has for them. But they don't include peace or hope. Not in the state that they are in at that moment. And outside of him electing them, there's nothing that they can do about the state that they're in. And truthfully, they don't want to change the state that they're in. And what they will receive as we have just had read to us is not a future or a hope. The Bible is written to the saints. The evidence of this can be found in all the epistles. There's always a two in the epistles. Listen to Romans 1, the, the two of Romans. Romans 1, 7. Two, all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The letter written to the church in Rome was sent to the church in Rome, and specifically written, written for the saints in Rome. And since it was penned by God, sent to his saints, it's for all of his children, but not all the people living in Rome, then or now, the Bible is written to saints. It is a love letter from God to you, if you are one of his children. And it's written for a specific purpose. Can you articulate that purpose? Do you know what it is? Because some people have said that the Bible, the Bible, that's just an acronym, and it stands for Basic Instructions Before Leaving the Earth. That might be handy. It's kind of catchy. And it has some value to it, but it's not accurate. It can direct our minds to the value of the Bible in obedience to it. But the Bible wasn't written to give us instructions about how to live. Not primarily. That's just a byproduct of the reason that the Bible was written. The letter that we're studying through, this is the last part of the Bible. And it has as its theme what the entire Bible is. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. All of it. And it was written to magnify the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who by His blood purchased for God people. Revelation 5.9 People whose names have been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who had been slain. Revelation 13.8 And the Bible has a flow and a trajectory to it. It's revelatory in its nature. It begins in the beginning of what we know of as history where it starts, in a perfect environment for his perfect, made-in-his-image children. And it speaks of the one who will crush the head of the serpent, as we're told in Genesis 3. And then as it moves forward, it reveals more and more about who he is and what he has accomplished and what the end of the age will be. In the book of Revelation, it has a flow trajectory to it as well chapter one is our introduction to the one that this entire bible speaks of chapters two and three about the most important organism that god has ever created his church but even there those chapters they're like the bulk of the bible they speak of the 11 sons of god and their actions but they're still primarily about the one that this is a revelation of and then beginning in chapter 4, John is taken into the heavenly realm, to the throne room of grace, where he has shown the history of the world. But this isn't new. Ezekiel was taken there. Isaiah was taken there. And the things that John is shown, these are the same things that these saints of old were shown as well. The sealed scroll. the one Only the Son of God is worthy to take the scroll that is held firmly in the right hand of the Ancient of Days, that scroll which is the title deed to all of creation, the one that Adam forfeited, the one that he sold for a single piece of fruit when he esteemed equality with God a thing to be grasped. Again, understanding the importance of that scroll and what it speaks of important in understanding the why of the events that we're told of today. When Adam esteemed something more important than God and then acted on it, when he sinned, he transferred the the dominion that had been placed under his control to the one who was at that moment tempting his wife. He chose Satan to be his master instead of God. He chose not bring glory to God. And sin. And again, we will think more about what sin is in a bit. But for now, we need to understand that when Adam sinned, he sold himself and all of creation to Satan for all time. And this is what the seven seals on that scroll represent. And you're thinking, well, couldn't God have just called a do-over? I mean, couldn't he have just vaporized everything and started from scratch? Most certainly he could have. But the very fact that there is a Lamb's book of life that was written before the foundation of the world, is told to us in Revelation 13.8, this is evidence that nothing that has happened since God said, let there be light, was a surprise to God. And all things were created for his glory. And the greatest glory was revealed in his Son. The Son that we are told is the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14 And what the Word accomplished, what he has accomplished, this is important for us to remember when we're contemplating this sealed scroll. Because we're told in Hebrews 1.3 concerning this word, that he is the radiance of his glory and the exaltation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And then after describing him, the uh, author of Hebrews then tells us why he's important. Who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Adam sold his dominion to Satan. All of creation was affected by his sin and all of humanity would remain separated from God, a slave to sin, unless that scroll was taken, unless those seals were broken. And the price to buy back that scroll was the willing sacrifice of a perfect human. And that perfect human would have to die. And as we know, that ransom price, that propitiation, that was paid on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago in this realm. But in the real realm, heavenly realm, the realm that John was now standing in, that price was paid before creation. And again, creation wasn't an accident or an afterthought. It all occurred for the glory of God. And it was made manifest in order that the greatest demonstration of his holiness, all attribute attributes of God, received the greatest amount of glory, the glory that is due his name. And what we're reading about today, this was the plan of God before he said, let there be light. And those first five scrolls or seals and all that we've been told happened when they were unsealed, this has been the reality of humanity since the fall. All of everything that was said from the first eleven verses of the chapter six, this has been the reality of, of all humanity since Adam and Eve was moved from the garden. Death, poverty, war, hatred, famine, pestilence. And this is what us, our humanity, what we all chose in our goodness when we chose evil over good. And what we're being told about, beginning in verse 12, this is all yet to happen. But they, just like all things, this is for the glory of God, as we're told in Romans eleven thirty six. So now that we have our hearts set on the why of all things, let us now consider the sixth seal and the events that we're told happen when it's opened, beginning in verse 12. Then I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth and as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong. And every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. To understand the why of today's verses, we must consider the events that were the catalyst for our verses to actually come about from today. Do you recall what it was that brought about the sixth seal being opened? It was what we are told happens when the fifth seal was opened. Verses 9 through 11. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the witness which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them. And it was told to them that they should rest for a while longer until the number of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, would also be completed." So please take note that the unsealing of that fifth seal, it didn't bring about the death of these saints. All it did was allow John to see, to have the ability to see the reality of what was already under the altar of God. And again, this is the flow of the entirety of the Bible, which is a progressive revelation of the one that it's written about. Christ was in the beginning. He was the one who said, let there be light. And he is the one who is the redeemer of the elect. And he's spoken of in Genesis. He's seen in Genesis. And yet the reality of who he is and what he will do, this is progressively revealed to us in the tables of history, in the books of the Bible, until we are given this book, the book of Revelation. And this is common in the book of Revelation as well. I mean, we've already seen this sort of thing already. John had been ushered into the heavenly throne room of grace, as told to us in chapter 4. And then he's told, describe it, what you see, describe it, which he does. But then he's shown something that was there all along that he didn't see. The scroll in the right hand of the Ancient of Days. And this is the same thing that happened when he saw Christ earlier. Do you recall John describing the one that had spoken to him? with a voice like a trumpet in chapters 1 and then again in chapter 4, he recognized him and he even described him for us in both of those chapters. But he didn't see him as the Lamb of God. Not then. That happened only after the proclamation is made concerning the scroll being taken. When no one steps forward and then he cries and then he sees Christ in all of his glory as told to us in verse 6 of chapter 5. When he says, then I saw in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He hadn't seen Jesus in this manner until he sees him take the scroll. And what John saw when the fifth seal was broken, this has been the reality of all the saints from Adam forward. The church has always been persecuted from the very beginning. And I don't mean the beginning as, if, as in what is told to us in Acts 2. I mean the beginning as in what is told to us in Genesis 4.8. Then Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and it happened when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. The persecution of the saints by, of God by the earth dwellers started right there. Do you recall the interaction that happened between God and Cain after that? What God said to Cain? Yahweh said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And again, God knew what he did. He wasn't asking for information. And the blood of Abel, that which he said is crying out to me is the same thing that's told to us in Revelation six, when they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The avenging of the spilled blood has always been the cry of the saints. Listen to Deuteronomy thirty-two, forty-three. O nations, cause his people to shout for joy, for he will avenge the blood of his slaves, and he will render vengeance on his adversaries, and he will atone for his land and his people. Same cry of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Listen to the prayer of Jeremiah as told to us in chapter 20. Yet, O Yahweh of hosts, you who test the righteous, you who see the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have revealed my cause, verse 12. And the same answer that is given to the saints under that altar is given to all saints, Revelation 6.11. And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was told to them that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So these saints are given a white robe and told to rest. Zachariah spoke of saints being given white robes in Zachariah chapter three verses one through five. And the saints in the church of Sardis, those who remain steadfast, they are described in this way. But you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before His angels. Revelation three four and five. And those in the church in Laodicea, they were given this command. I advise you, buy from me gold and um, refined by fire so that you can become rich, and white garments so you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be made manifest. And I salve for an ointment for your eyes so that you may see. And even the 24 elders around the throne, they're also dressed in white robes. And what is it that saints who have been clothed in white robes, what are they told to do? It's the same thing that Jesus compelled all saints to do in Matthew 11:28 28-30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This has been the promise of God and the reality of the redeemed for all of human history. This is what the psalmist said in Psalm 116, verse 7, Return to your, your rest, O my soul, for Yahweh has dealt bountifully with you. And how had Yahweh dealt bountifully with his soul? For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. And this is what is meant by Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Christ is our Sabbath rest. And his rest, what these saints under that altar are told to rest and wait until the fullness of their number, all that have been predestined to die in Christ as they had, this is a warning that is given to all of those, given to all of us that are told that there is a Sabbath rest, as told to us in Hebrews 4:9. This same warning that is given to the church in Laodicea. Remember that the Bible was written specifically to the redeemed, but there's always been within the physical church people that are not part of the eternal church. Always. And this is why we're given verses 11 through 13 of Hebrews 4. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall into the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Christ is our Sabbath rest. He is our eternal rest. And just as every other aspect of our salvation, we have a part to play in that rest. And being diligent to enter that rest does not happen passively Because if the rest of Christ has been made manifest to you, you will actively work to enter that rest. Just as these saints under that altar did. Just as Abel did. And it's the death of that last saint. The complete and utter salvation of every person that Christ shed his blood for. This is what brings about the sixth seal being opened, which is exactly what is said to those saints under the altar when they're told to rest until the last number. All their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, would also be completed. And now we can consider why this great day is so great. What God does when he opens the sixth seal is, is the beginning of him pouring out his wrath specifically for a, spe- for a single reason. And this is what makes this a great day. What we are told of happening at the end of the age, we need to understand that. What we're told that begins to happening here, what happens at the end of the age, that should have happened the very moment. That Adam willingly, knowingly esteemed equality with God a thing to be grasped and grasped that fruit that had been forbidden to him, the fruit that he would have been told would make him equal with God. This is what should have happened at that moment. There should have been a great earthquake, and the sun should have become black like sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon should have become like blood. And the stars of the sky should have fallen to the earth that the fig cast its tree, or the to the ground when it's shaken by the wind. And the sky should have been split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. And every mountain and island should have been moved out of their place. This is what should have happened when Adam took that fruit and ate. And it didn't, because it wouldn't bring the greatest glory to God. And God, in his mercy, had predestined some of the children of Adam, maybe even Adam himself, to be redeemed and brought back into right standing with him. And he did this in order that his beloved son could demonstrate for all eternity to see the glory that is due his name. He was merciful on that day and gracious to the elect. Do you recall what it was that Adam and Eve did after they sinned? Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden, Genesis 3.8. They did the exact same thing that those who remain on the earth do on that great terrible day of the Lord. Sixteen. When they those on the earth said, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. No, Adam didn't hide from God because he was sorry. He hid himself from from the presence of his former master because he didn't desire to be in his presence any longer. He had sold himself and all of creation to a new master, the one that had promised equality. And these people those that we read about in verse 16, they're not seeking mercy. And they don't want forgiveness. They hate the Lamb of God. And they don't desire to be in His presence. They despise the wrath of the Lamb because they do not esteem Christ. Again, keep at the forefront of your mind why Jesus being worthy to take the scroll is of such importance. Because if we're going to understand the flow, of the, Rev- of the book of Revelation, we must keep Jesus as its focus. And what we're reading about from our verses today, we're going to read about these events later. Again, when the trumpet judgments are told to us, beginning in chapter eleven, and then when the bowl judgments are talked about, beginning in chapter sixteen, those are the same judgments, only seen from a slightly different angle, focusing on a different aspect of that judgment. The great earthquake that is in verse 12 will also be spoken of when the seventh angel blows that trumpet. And the seventh angel, when he pours out that last bowl of judgment on the earth. Those events aren't separate from the ones we're reading about from today. And they're not different from each other either. This is the beginning of the final act prior to the second coming of Christ. And this isn't something new either. John isn't being shown something new, something that we have not been told about before. This is the same thing that those other revelations of Jesus Christ, those that we know of as the prophets of the Old Testament, the same thing that they saw and proclaimed. Listen to Joel. I'm not even going to look at the major prophets. I'm going to actually just pull from a couple minor ones. Listen to Joel chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. He said, Send in the sickle. For the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. And Yahweh roars from Zion and gives forth his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But Yahweh is a refuge for his people and a strong defense to the sons of Israel. And then listen to the prophet Habakkuk. Listen how he described the events that we are told of today. He said, God comes from Taman, and from the Holy One from Mount Paran. Salah. And His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of His praise. His brightness is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from His hand, and there is a hiding in His strength. And you split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you in writhe, the downpour of waters passed by, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted high its hands, the sun and moon stood in their lofty places, they went away at the light of your arrows, at the brightness of your flashing spear, in indignation you marched through the earth, in anger you trampled the nations, you went forth for the salvation of your people. For salvation with your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked to lay him bare from thigh to neck, Salah, Habakkuk 3, 3 3-13. There's many more instances that men were taken to this place and and then were shown these things. Isaiah saw this, related it to us in Isaiah 24 and chapter 34. Ezekiel was taken there, shown this day and related it to us in Ezekiel chapter 32. This isn't new in the Bible. It has always been the promised end. But what is the reason that these judgments are happening? A clear understanding of that can be found from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. Isaiah was taken to the very place John was taken and shown the sixth seal being opened. And he gives us the why of this great day. You can turn to Isaiah chapter 2 if you got your Bible handy, or you can just listen. I'm going to start in verse 12. For Yahweh of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and high and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be made low. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the high mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every lofty tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the desirable crafts. The loftiness of man will be bowed down, and the men who are high will be made low, and Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 18... But the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the dread of Yahweh and the splendor of his majesty, when he arises to make the earth tremble. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and to the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of, um, of the cliffs before the dread of Yahweh and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Verse 22, stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? The judgment that we're being told of today is happening because of sin, the sin of man. Well, what is sin? James 4.17 tells us, "To, to the one who knows to do the right thing and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So what is the right thing that we know that we should do? What is the first and greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6.5 And not doing that, not loving God, that is sin. Simply because it is a thing that we know that we should all do. It's a thing that we were created to do. And not doing it, that is idolatry. And we need to understand what idolatry is. Simply because it's a sin of man. Idolatry is the worship, it's the esteeming of anything other than God. And it doesn't really matter what it is, what idol that you are worshipping. The truth is, is that the idol that you are worshipping is yourself. When you're, when you're worshipping an idol. You're creating God in your image. It's to thinking more of the gift than we actually do of the gift giver. And the language used to describe those that are being judged by God this time, this is an important thing, an important, important distinction that is being made because there are no saints here on this world when this happens. Throughout the book of Revelation, these people are all called earth dwellers or Those of this world. And here's the contrast, the distinction that we're supposed to understand. John 17, verses 14 through 16. Jesus said, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We are not of this world. We are not an earth dweller. But we all realize that even after salvation, even after being given the word of God, we can all still fall back into the trap of being idolaters, just like those earth dwellers do, whose world this is their home. And this is why we need to read, why we need to heed Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. And if you're desiring an application from our verses from today, if you're looking for something that you can apply to your life, if you're reading about the wrath of the Lamb on this world and those in the world and you're thinking, well, what difference does that make because we're not going to be here anywhere, anyway? Well, here's that application. You will, by your actions, prove if you've actually entered the rest of God or not, or if you are not of this world or not, or if you failed to enter his rest and remain in this world. And if you're wondering, what can I do to ensure that I'm not one of those that are asking the rocks to fall on me? Well, you do that with 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us to do test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself, or do you not recognize about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? You apply Romans 12, 2. Not being conformed to the world. Again, saints, I care for you. And as I said, the Bible was written to saints, not to the world, but God knew The very beginning that within his physical church there's going to be those that have fooled themselves into thinking that they are a child of God. You have to know this is of the greatest importance. Not being conformed to the world and the ways of the world, great indication. That you're saved and again it's, we are saved for a reason and that reason isn't that you can have your best life now and it's not either to prevent you from going to hell you were saved because of what we're told in Isaiah 43 verses 6 and 7 because we were created for his glory and just like all creation, your salvation happens for the same reason that all things happen, for the glory of God. And the sixth seal being opened, there are six components of creation that are decimated. And then six types of humans are listed as all hiding themselves from God, repenting. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And this is a great day. And we can think wrongly about this great day as if it's not a day of rejoicing. But that's the truth. As I said earlier, when God created all things, everything that he created, they all bring glory to him by obeying, or by obeying him, except one, us. And our sin has affected all creation. And when God begins pouring out his wrath, On man, all of all of creation is going to rejoice when this day comes. Listen to how the heavens think of the wrath of God being poured out on humanity. Listen to Psalm ninety-six, verses eleven through thirteen. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar as well as its fullness. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before Yahweh, for He is coming. He is coming to judge the earth, and He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in His faithfulness. Listen to Psalm 58, verses 10 and 11. The righteous will be glad when He beholds the vengeance. He will wash His feet in the blood of the wicked, and men will say, surely there is a reward for, righteous, for the righteous, and surely there is a God who judges on earth. Listen to another telling of these events given to us today, the one we're told in Revelation 18:20, we're told, "Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints, and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her." What we're told of happening today. This day, the awful day of the Lord, is an awful day of destruction. And it's the prelude to the second coming of the reigning king of kings coming. It's a day of destruction for those that hate the lover of our souls. Those that say that he is not worthy to be praised. And we must recognize this about them. Even the ones that are kind of kind, seemingly nice, well-dressed, well-put-together, Every one of them deserves exactly what they get. They will receive nothing more than what they've earned. That's what we're told in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. This is what all humanity has earned, including us. And this is what makes this day so great because you know and I know you deserve this. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is the awful truth of man outside of God. We will Every one of us outside of him, to the very end, we will shake our fist in utter defiance to him. We're told in Revelation 16.9, And men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who had the authority over these plagues, and they didn't repent so as to give him glory. We're doomed, and that's what makes this day so great. Again, the purpose of this great day of the Lord—that the one that we're reading about today—is the same purpose that we've been given in the Bible. It's for the glory of God through Jesus Christ, who is the worthy of uh, the worthy Lamb of God. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, Hebrews 1.3. Saints, the first creation wasn't an accident. And nothing that has transpired since that initial creation week has been an accident either. The fall, the redemption, the second coming. All of this was in the mind of God before he uttered that command, let there be light. And it's all for the glory of the Son. And the destruction of all that is, of all of mankind. It seems awful and unloving. And it is awful, but it is not unloving. Because God is love. And listen to what Jesus said concerning the events of today and of his second coming in Matthew chapter 25. He said, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another. as a shepherd shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verses 31 through 34. And then he will say, verse 41, To those on the left, depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. The death that awaits these that are hiding in cliffs and under rocks, this is nothing in comparison to the wrath that is spoken of as coming in Matthew chapter 25. And verse 46 of Matthew 25 is why this is a great day. And these will go into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. There should be none that are righteous. Remember, we were all free from righteousness when we were slaves to sin, as told to us in Romans 6.20. And this is why all the glory due to this book and the entire Bible is about Him. because. He born of a virgin 2,000 years ago. But He's also the same one that walked in the cool of the day with Adam in the Garden of Eden. He was crucified on that cruel wooden cross 2,000 years ago when He cried, It is finished! And made propitiation for our souls. And it was then that He unsealed the effects of all seven seals that that we sealed with our sin. And he's the Lamb of God who had our names written in his book of life before the foundation of the world. as told to us in Revelation 13.8. And this book, this book of Revelation, it's going to end up right exactly where Genesis started. Genesis started in heaven with Christ proclaiming, let there be light. And it's going to end up in heaven with Christ proclaiming, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, write for these words are faithful and true. Revelation 21.5. And what we're reading about today, this is the beginning of him coming quickly, which will then bring us into full communion with him. To bring about the swift and utter destruction of our enemy. And God has been glorified in our salvation. And He will be glorified in their judgment. It's all for the glory of God. So let us glory in the salvation that He has given to us. Let us esteem Him of great value, understanding that those that are not of Him hate Him. And they deserve the wrath of the Lamb that we're told is the great day of the Lord. Let's pray.